I, I, I was, uh, as we were worshiping, I just felt the, the need to, to tell us, to tell you all, to tell myself, the Lord sees you. He sees you. If you have felt invisible, if you've just felt like, does the Lord know? Does he care? Is he watching over me? The Lord sees you. And sometimes it's just good to get that acknowledgement, I think, you know, that, that, that you're not sliding under the radar. <laughs> you're not just skirting in here and going by unnoticed, that your life is, is not just inconsequential. He sees you and what you do matters. I'm not sure if you've been around long enough to hear me brag on Brother Lawrence or not. <laughs> but if, uh, if you haven't heard me talk about Brother Lawrence, we're going to get into it again today a little bit. Uh, he was a, a soldier. He entered a monastery at the age of 26 in Paris. He was working in the kitchen, and he was mending sandals. And that probably would have been that. <laughs> but he was a person who became known as a person of peace. And people began seeking him out in the kitchen. That's where they could find him, to talk to him, to figure out what in the world was going on with this guy. What, what, what is happening? Why do I get a sense of peace when I speak with you? What, what's making you so different? And, you know, he didn't really do so much, but he ended up writing letters to some people who just kept coming back, and they'd ask him more and more questions. And, and it wasn't his writing. It was his correspondence. It was, it was these letters that became a book practicing uh, or, I'm sorry, the practice of the presence of God. And that might sound familiar if you've heard our, our motto here, our mission statement as a church. The practice of the presence of God. That's what he was about. He found that in the cooking and the mending, a piece of the presence of God. And I want you to hear this. He was not washing dishes to train for ministry. I think sometimes that that's what we think a, a humble service might be. You got to do your time in the lower ranks, right? Spend your time unclogging the toilets after Sunday school. You know, make, make, make the coffee because the coffee has to be made. It, it's not those things that, that, that we're doing to prepare for the greater things. Those are the greater things. And I think sometimes if we don't realize that, that there was the presence of God in the cooking and the mending, we're going to miss the presence of God whenever it comes with the kneeling and the celebration. I don't believe that Brother Lawrence was aspiring to be noticed. I don't think he was waiting his turn to be the guy at the front. I don't think that's who he was. He had the eyes of the Savior on him as he was cutting the onions, slicing the potatoes. That matters. <laughs> he wasn't aspiring to be noticed. He wasn't waiting his turn. In the vineyard, we say the way onward is the way in. What we mean by that is that we come in by grace, we continue by grace. The way in is the way on. There's no bait and switch. It's not like we're going to find some deeper uh, mystical truth and all of a sudden we're going to switch gears and, and become a wholly different people than who we were when we got saved. This matters so much that we know that the way to the cross is humility. And the way to experience the depths of the presence of God is humility. Receiving from him. Not plotting our own course. Not becoming our own Christ. Not, not becoming the means of our own salvation. But becoming that person who we were when we first recognized Jesus. And we spoke his name and said, Son of David, have mercy on me, a Savior. Humility is not a lower level initiation rite. It's the substance of our faith. Humility encapsulates the beauty and the glory of the whole gospel. 
I want to help us as a church to see the glory of humility, not as a means of achieving something, not as a process to get noticed, to move on to deeper things, but as something that has its own glory. And I, th I think that this is still something we need to talk about because a, an unhealthy humility cuts the legs out from underneath the church. An unhealthy humility causes you to stagnate. It causes us to be passive. It causes us to settle for less because we misunderstand what it actually means to be a people of humility, to recognize that there's glory and power and authority and boldness when we embody the same humility that Christ himself had. So this is kind of what we've been saying through the series. And I, I, I think that every one of these, again, is worthy for you to pause on and to realize, do I have a misunderstanding still of humility? I know this church has been talking about it for week after week, but you can hear these things and think, I know what humility is. It just means being nice. It just means letting somebody else go first. And what I'm saying is, no, we've still missed it. Stare deep into the face of Christ to see what humility looks like. It's not thinking less of yourself, as we've said, but of yourself less. It's not a characteristic that describes somebody. It's a posturing. It's a position that they take. It's not a training for something greater. It's not waiting for your turn. I think there's some people who think that they've been living a humble life, just thinking one of these days it's going to come back and I'm going to get my turn. I'm going to keep favoring other people, and one day I'll get noticed. One day I'll get seen. One day it'll be my turn. And you know what happens? Bitterness, <laughs> frustration. And people snap sometimes later in life because I've been washing dishes for 60 years. Why doesn't anybody notice? I was uh, I, I, I chose early on in my marriage with Leah to, to be the one who washes the dishes. And I think I said toilets as well, but I don't know if I've been so good on that one. <laughs> I hate laundry. I hate laundry with a passion. And I was like, whatever it can take for me to not to do laundry, this isn't about rolls or I just I don't like laundry. And I, I started doing dishes, I think it was about maybe six months ago, realizing I'm going to be doing this the rest of my life. <laughs> and I was seeing the kids, the kids, I think what it was, was that they had been out of school for a little while, and, and yet somehow the, the, the last Tupperware that was in their, their lunchbox made its way to the sink. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of crustiness, a little bit of mold growing there, and I'm cleaning this out, trying to be loving, but feeling disgust. And I think this is going to be my life. <laughs> and, and then something somehow, I, this, this is not a, a joke, it, like it, it shifted in a way. To not to get the appreciation, I know I'm sharing in this story, which is probably getting some appreciation, I'm sorry, that's not the point. But, but realizing that this is life. This is life. This is not like doing my time to move on to the next thing. This, this, is, this is the follow-up to the table. This is, this is being family. This is taking care of what needs to be cared for. Th this is loving my kids. This is loving my wife. And it was funny. We, we went to the, to the beach to spend time with my, my sister and her family and my, my parents. And one of the things that I noticed was like, like day two, often when I'm on vacation, like I don't want to do chores. You know what I mean? Day two, I was doing the dishes without even thinking about it. And I remember that moment of just like, this is life. And it, and it wasn't like a humbling. It wasn't like a humiliation. It wasn't like this, this thing that like cost me something. I don't know if this will last also, let me say that. <laughs> but it was just what needed to be done. And I think when we're not realizing that we're not waiting our turn to be done with this, 
there's something that's settled in our soul to how we live our lives. Humility is not passivity. It's not just being deferential. I was at a new job, and I, I remember I kept opening the door for other people to walk through first. One guy's, Josh, you don't always have to be so deferential. It's like, what? And, you know, it's that moment of whenever Christ looks at you and says, come, sit at my right. It's that moment of, 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 of not being at the wedding feast and, and taking that position of, of, of prestige and honor and having the, the, the bridegroom say, no, 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 let me call somebody else up here and take that seat. That's not for you. But to be called up instead, to be seen, to be noticed, to have that space made for you, it's a wonderful thing. It's not about not having the power or options or ability. Sometimes we think we're being humble when you simply haven't been given a choice, <laughs> right? If you can't do something well, if you don't have the means to accomplish it, you're not being humble by not doing it. You're just not doing the thing that, that you're not called to do. And that don't, don't mistake that as being humble. That's just not you, and that's fine. I'm not going to be an NFL linebacker in my life. I'm not being humble by saying that. <laughs> that's just truth-telling. It matters. Humility cannot be taken advantage of. This was a big one for me. You see how Christ would not let his washing of his disciples' feet mean that he was going to give them a head-to-toe bath. Humility is not to be taken advantage of. We think it will be. We're afraid if we're kind, then it's just going to be an onslaught of, of everybody taking advantage of us. It's not deferred joy. It's not deferred joy. Humility is good friends with desire. Humility is good friends with ambition. We're told to eagerly desire the greater spiritual gifts, to seek the kingdom of God. That's very ambitious. Humility is hand-in-hand hand with awe and worship. This is a different picture of humility than I had when we started this. When we started talking about this, I, I thought it'd be nice. <laughs> that'd be kind. I thought it'd be gracious. I thought it'd be, you know, whatever those things are. Humility is actually an amazing posturing to receive the fullness of the kingdom of God. And anything less than that, I think we're missing out on all of this. Misunderstandings of humility have made the Christian people subject to corrupting influences, made us subject to bad teachers, fleecing organizations, subject to rulers and laws that do not reflect the glory of God since we associate with being calm, orderly, and mannerly. The status quo, when we say don't rock the boat, that's not the life of humility that Christ led. He brought a, a revolution, changed the world. He was crucified as a man of humility. It's a lot to hold in your head, but I, I hope you've been following along because otherwise the glory of humility can be missed. And I really want us to see and appreciate the glory of humility here this morning. Uh, my takeaway from the series, and I've had several, but my main takeaway is that humility is this path to experience life-altering, life-giving, satisfying awe. That's what we talked about last week. To, to actually marvel at the plan, the unwavering power, the authority of what we are in the presence of. This awe. And if we come in with pride, if we come in asserting our own ways, we're going to miss it. The church should be a place where we experience the fullness of Christ and his kingdom come. A place where his power is something that, that we can partake in and share and enjoy. If we're not a place that is causing us to legitimately drop to our knees in worship, we're missing out on something of the kingdom of God. Because that doesn't line up with what scripture tells us. 
It doesn't line up with the, the emotion, the health of what we see in the Psalms. It doesn't line up with the hope that we're looking for when Revelation and Jesus comes again. If we're missing out on that, and I think we are, I don't think we yet have embraced humility as for what it's meant to be. I want this church to be a place where we regularly encounter things that cause us to drop our jaws. But there's an angle on that, I think, that is um, where we ourselves are all producing. And that's what I, we're going to be talking about today. This, this angle where we ourselves, with the things that we do, are all producing. The fruit of humility, the shape that humility crafts in us, the glory that we have is the result of humility. So glory and awe are kind of adjacent in this space, right? We're in awe of things that are glorious, <laughs> And I think that there's something with the way that we operate that can allow us to partake in, to show, to reflect that glory. The big idea is that the fruit of a humble life, the work produced by humble hands, reveals God's glory. So do we seek our own glory? There's an old joke about an elder in a, in a church, and he was given a, a, a ribbon that said the most humble elder, but then they had to take it away because he started wearing it. it it's... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cheap joke. You, I appreciate your laugh, but, you know, it's been going around for a while. It's funny, but I, I think that we have a, a, such a misunderstanding on how to really be humble in the kingdom of God that this confuses us, right? How, how can we be humble and know it? How, how can we somehow be a part of this thing and yet also subject to it? And, and we don't know how to do this without being passive. We don't know how to do this without being weak. We don't know how to do this without shutting our mouth and being quiet, and there's a bigger story here. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this book, The Screwtape Letters. And, and whenever I, I read this excerpt, you're going to have to remember that this is a demon talking to another demon. So the enemy is not our enemy. The enemy they're talking about is God. You've just got to put yourself in that mindset, okay? So this is a fictional, I probably have to say that too, <laughs> fictional account that C.S. Lewis wrote that, that's between these, these two demons talking about the, the patient, which is a person in the church. And it's talking about how the, this, uh, and I don't have the whole thing on, on, on here, but, but how this person's corruption is going. All right, so if you can hold that in your head again, you've got to be in a reverse thinking for this. Uh, I'm going to be reading more than, than what's on the screen again, but, but, uh, but the, the, the parts that, that I will want you to notice are, are on the screen. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact all virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he is them. And that is specifically true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility will appear. If he wakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this for too long, for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he'll merely laugh at you and go to bed. But there are other profitable ways of fixing his attention on the virtue of humility. By this virtue, as by all the others, our enemy wants to turn the man's attention away from himself to him and to the man's neighbors. All the objection and self-hatred are designed in the long run solely for this end. Unless they attain this end, they do us little harm. They may seem even to do us good if they, if they keep the man concerned with himself. And above all, if self-contempt can be made the starting point for contempt of other selves, and thus gloom and cynicism and cruelty, 
You must therefore conceal from the patient the true end of humility. Let him think of it, not as self-forgetfulness, but as a certain kind of opinion, namely a low opinion of his own talents and character. Some talents I gather he really has, fix in his mind the idea that humility consists in trying to believe those talents to be less value, valuable than he believes them to be. No doubt they are in fact less valuable than he believes, but that's not the point. The great thing is to make him value an opinion for some quality other than truth, thus introducing an element of dishonesty and make-believe into the heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they are ugly, and clever men trying to believe that they are fools. And since what they are trying to believe may in some cases be manifest nonsense, they cannot succeed in believing it. We have the chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves in an effort to achieve the impossible. To anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if he had done it by another. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant, or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. That's humility. To recognize in yourself and the people around you that we are glorious, excellent things. Without any bias towards ourselves. Without, without thinking that, that, that we're better than anyone else, but realizing the excellence of what we have, the glory that we have here. That we can take a part in an economy that's not based upon me taking it away from you, but we can take part in an economy where all of us together are better because it reveals the goodness of our Father. This is one of those weird things that, that if you stare at it too, hard, too long, it's, it's really hard to hold on to. I don't, I don't know if it came from my, my father or not, but, but he has this one thing that he, he says every presidential election. And, and I, there's some wisdom here. He thinks the number one qualification for a person who wants to be president should be that they don't want to be president. <laughs> right? If you desire this position, I question you. <laughs> if you want to be in the government, you're probably not fit to rule us. But that's kind of the reality of it, right? In, in, in its truest form, this should not be a thing that, that people set about to aspire to, but that's almost thrust upon them. It shouldn't be a thing that we're like, oh, oh, this guy, he's got the best grades, he's been working this whole thing, he's got this campaign of millions and almost billions of dollars being spent to get our attention, he's campaigning against this, smearing campaigns, all this stuff, trying to win this thing so that, that he can have the most influence in the world. Would it not be great if we as a people saw some guy who was just humbly loving and serving, we said, that guy's got some wisdom. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm, I'm fine with what I'm doing. Like, no, no, no. You're doing really well. We think you could do even more. And we elected that guy. Like, what a picture of the world that could be, right? This isn't to get all political on us. But I don't believe that Jesus, when he came, had an ambition to get the name above all names. I don't think he came thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and die on a cross that everybody worships me, <laughs> right? If he did, it kind of pollutes it, doesn't it? 
If he was thinking, I need to get all of the people to worship me, so I guess I got to go through the cross, <laughs> you know, then why would we celebrate this fact? He was paying a price to get what he wanted. He did pay a price to get what he wanted, but it was for us. It was for our benefit, and that's the glory of humility. That, that's the way that this price is somehow cost and paid, but it actually makes a better picture than the other way around. The ambition kind of cheapens it, but it would also be wrong for it to be withheld. If Jesus paid the price, went to the cross, he died, he was resurrected, and, and the Father was just like, yep, thanks, next, now let's move on, right? That makes no sense either. The Father to bless the Son, to say, you went to the cross, I will give you the name above all names. When everything is working well, and we know it in our souls, it's beautiful. It every, the, the, wor the, the worker is worthy of the wages. This whole economy makes sense. Ambition has not been polluted by pride and greed as we see it in the world. The whole system is painting a more beautiful picture when all the parts are working together. That's the picture of the kingdom of God that is so sorely misrepresented here on this earth. This beautiful, self-affirming reality when things work out the way that they should. We don't see it much on this side of eternity because our ambition and reward and glory are tainted by pride and greed. But all this comes from Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That last part there is where we're dialing in today. The glory of humility that makes sense that Jesus was given the name above all names. The glory that, that makes sense that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That when Jesus is, is exalted, the glory of the Father is revealed. And the path to that is humility. It's emptying ourselves. It's celebrating this. It's taking part in this whole thing. And I want to add a little bit more. I don't remember if I have this as a slide or not, but I want you to hear this part too. Because with that as the setting, Paul goes on and tells us more about how we are to each other. Therefore, and again, every time you have therefore in Scripture, look at what it's there for. So because of Jesus being exalted and the glory being revealed, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I can't help but read that and not think of awe. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. It's God doing this. This is the humility. It's God doing this. So do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. This is the glory being revealed and uh, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ. Does that sound like humble? It is. I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not labor in vain. Our work matters. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So God exalted Jesus. There's all this hubris of man. Uh, we, we do this in every circumstance, right? We find a new animal, and we think, oh, I should bring that animal home and set it free. Australia did this with the rabbit. You all know about this? They, they brought the, the rabbit from Europe. They're like, hey, we like rabbits. Probably some dingoes or something in Australia will like the rabbits too, and guess what happened? No, they went crazy. <laughs> there were millions of rabbits all over the outback, and it's like, oh, no, this is a problem. They're eating everything, and now the kangaroos and the koalas and everything are suffering. So what do we do? So they brought in more things, more creatures trying to kill the rabbits. Guess what? Didn't work out. They introduced a virus into the native population to make them blind, thinking that they'd make them easier prey. So now you have millions of blind rabbits bumping into each other, going across here, and then those that remained that were immune started breeding. And now you have immune <laughs> rabbits going all crazy in Australia. It has become a huge problem. The problem, by the way, is not solved. There are still <laughs> rabbits in the outback causing havoc on the ecosystem. And we do this everywhere, right? We bring fish. We bring plants. We bring these things. There's kudzu in Georgia. Anybody from, from Georgia besides us who knows about this? Kudzu creeping from the south is from Japan, but it is taking over things. I remember growing up, and you would see these, these little gullies on the side of the road. It just has kudzu growing over all the, the wires and everything. My dad worked in uh, steam turbines. He said that, that he had a, an idea for a perpetual motion machine kudzu growing into a furnace <laughs> and it would just be perpetual energy because this thing took over the south it's going to make its way by the way to to north carolina i'm sure at some point in time oh it's here already so it's like this woman who swallowed the fly situation right this idea that, that we got to keep doing something new because we meddled with something and we didn't understand what we we're doing we have our pride we think we understand it but but everything's getting worse because of what we've done we dig a bigger and bigger hole but I do love this thing I've noticed sometimes. I don't know if you go wandering in the woods, but if I'm in a new place, I like to go wander the woods and, you know, get lost. And, uh, and every now and then I'll be in the, in the, in the forest, and, and you'll look around, and you just notice all the trees are in a straight line. You ever notice this? And I, I love it because you know at some point in time this was an orchard right? And the forest kind of reclaimed it, and you can see this straight line of trees, and there's just like this, this faint imprint of somebody who had a plan here. Uh, our most successful par uh, farming as a family has probably occurred this year. I've got a picture of it here. Um, you got it? There we go. <laughs> I am proud to say we are growing tomatoes. I am not proud to tell you we did not plant these tomatoes. <laughs> so they just started growing on their own next to our porch. I have no idea, like, was it a bird who pooped out the seeds? Like, I, I don't know what happened. But we have some healthy tomato plants growing right now in our yard. 
And, and I, I heard this thing on one of my podcasts. It's called Do Nothing Farming. Have you heard of this? It's actually from 1976. They started this. It's this idea. Uh, I'm not a farmer. This is a vast oversimplification of this. But do nothing farming is kind of what it sounds like. <laughs> you do nothing. You don't till the, gr- the soil. You, you don't remove the, you know, all, the, all the work that we do between crops. You don't weed. You don't pull those things out. Like, it's kind of like laziness as a plan. <laughs> and that's, again, a vast oversimplification. There's a whole book written in 1976 you can read to see what it is, but it, it's been practiced a lot. And uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating because it's kind of like, you know, the, the whole Jurassic Park life will find a way. It's kind of like that idea here, but also biblically, only God can make a tree grow. Actually, that's poetic. Biblical would be God makes it grow. We plant, we water, but only God can make it grow. It's kind of along those lines. And I, the first thing I did when I heard about this is I wanted to look up crop yield. You know, how, how's it, how well does it work? What's the, what, what does it produce? Is, is it comparable? And, and I realized that's part of the problem with this whole thing. This obsession with how, much, how well is it going to do? Like, like we're, we're adding something to this, right? Whenever I'm pulling out the rocks, when I'm doing this work, the whole success of the crop depends on me, right? Like, if, if I'm not doing my thing, then, then there can't be any way that this works. And so this is almost offensive to our pride if do-nothing farming is actually better. Thousands of years, humans have been trying to do agriculture. If the answer is do-nothing, it's kind of a slap in our face, right? Well, this study here from the Spartan Newsroom and this was in 2020, so this is actually quite recent, uh, goes ahead and, and proves that actually the yield of do-nothing farming is better. It's higher. Not only is the yield higher, it's sustainable. Because the way that, that we have actually been turning the soil over and doing all this stuff, it's depleting all the resources. The, the weeds and everything, when they actually get used by this, it produces more crops and lets it go on for longer. What, what, are, what are we even doing? <laughs> like, only God can make it grow. And yet we are spending ourselves. We are trying so hard to make our mark. We're trying so much when God's glory is being revealed through nature. Like, the whole thing works. Like, just chill. Like, it's amazing, I feel like, that we struggle to find food. Like, he's like, the ground will literally grow it for you. Here we are trying to fill our pockets with money to, to exchange it for goods and services when he's like, the ground will give you food. <laughs> just If the seeds are just dropped there by a bird, you will get tomatoes. Like, you don't have to do it. I've done nothing. Fry green tomatoes. We can have them tonight. <laughs> Maybe eventually they'll be red. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> just about. So do nothing farming. He, th- this is the hard thing. The, the, the issue is that we have this obsession with the highest yields, the most success, the most important thing is to win. And the problem is I've realized I don't trust the system. I trust myself more. I don't trust God and his design for these things. I trust myself more. This is the humility that, that's got to step in here. Do we really believe that God's ways are higher and better than our own ways? Or is the best outcome dependent upon my understanding? Is the best outcome dependent upon my skills, my best work? Do I think that I am so important to the success of whatever's going on that if I'm not doing my absolute best, then everything's going to be a disaster? This is an excuse for laziness. This isn't saying do nothing. (laughs) But it is saying allow the goodness of God to actually be the driving thing. 
And this is hard. The glory isn't what we produce, though. In fact, so much of what we produce is temporary and worthless. It isn't in what we can do. The glory is inherent to the system that we're a part of. It's God's glory when this is all working right. When Jesus goes to the cross and he's given the name above every name, that's the glory of God being revealed. It's not that Jesus did this work and he fought his way and he he proved his, his grit and his merit. No. The Father gave it to him. He had emptied himself. It was right and appropriate. That's the system. That's the gospel. That's the way this works. This is actually hard, I think, and it's complicated. Not a straightforward thing. But when you see it, when you can get it, my God, give me more of this. Give me more of this. Because it's so much healthier than thinking that we are so important to the success of anything that's going on in the kingdom of God. So I'm going to throw one more definition at us. One more understanding of humility to try to help us out. I've got this next slide here. It's this distance between what we could do and what we end up doing. And that distance is the glory being revealed. That distance, that separation. Like if I did all my best effort, if I, if I, if I own this result, if I, if I invest everything that I am, if I, if I hold on to my prestige and my, my, my titles, If I take everything that's owed to me and live my life out in that full American dream way that I I believe in, then that's the top line, right? And nobody's going to fault you. If you save for your retirement and you, you buy yourself a nice house and a car and a boat or cruises or whatever it is, and you live that, everybody's going to be like, well, he earned that, right? You're owed that. You, 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 you worked for that. You've got that. But if you give of that to the lost and the least, the difference in that is the glory being revealed. Do you see what I'm saying? I shared this in the beginning of this whole series, a story about the queen, right? The queen being unrecognized at a party because she didn't have on her crown and her earrings and her her massive jewelry that a queen would wear. The thing is, nobody would fault the queen for wearing her crown, right? She's the queen. (laughs) Of course she's going to have a crown, right? But that difference, that gap between what she was allowed to do and what she chose to do, that's where the glory, that's where the humility is revealed. This whole idea of, of what I'm allowed to do, what my rights tell me I can do, but what I choose to do instead reveals glory. We have the right to do a lot of things. Do we lay down our rights? for our brothers and sisters? Or do we exercise them? Because it's perfectly fine that I do it. Bible doesn't tell me not to do it, right? I have the right to say whatever I want to say, and I'll put it on Facebook. And, you know, people if people are going to get mad, let them get mad. It's my right, right? But in humility, do we choose to love another and lay down our right of maybe being the most correct person in the room to bless their faith, to call them forward, to continue this. That's where the glory of God is revealed. That difference between who you could be and all the stuff you could do. If Jesus came and, and, des- and de- demanded to, to be the, the son of God on a throne, right? And he wasn't the humble servant. They wanted to make him king. The story would have been dramatically different if he took that and, and decided that the, the way with Rome is war. And I'm the king of the Jews, and we're going we're gonna to live that way. And he was that revolutionary political figure they wanted. 
but instead he was a servant leader who laid down his life. His line was not even a dot. (laughs) He gave all that he was, and all that was revealed was the glory of God. Do you see why this distance between who I could be and who I choose to be, why it matters? What does it reveal whenever I say less of me and more of you? The reason the rationale that we shorten that line, our own line, has got to be because of love. Either shows us that that this humility is godly, beautiful, and glorious, or it's one of those first concepts that we listed above. Passivity, right? Lack of understanding, lack of options. We might be doing less because we don't have the choice to do anything but less. That's not revealing glory, right? If I don't have a choice but to only go so far, only to take three steps, if I don't have money, if I don't have retirement, if I don't have time, if I don't have whatever that might be, then I can't expect that to reveal the glory of God. That's, that's a place where I need to press in and ask for more. God, increase our capacity, enlarge our tents so that we can give and reveal more of your glory. Let us be in a place where we can bless others because of who you are. Don't misunderstand. It's not about doing less because we can't, because we're too lazy, because we're too busy, or because we're too afraid. It's not about underperforming. But in that space, we find love, community, and glory. You don't have to be the one to answer all the questions. But if a question needs to be answered, have an answer ready. Let it be asked. Be slow to speak. It's not be stupider. (laughs) You don't have to use your wealth to make your life as comfortable as possible. Share it. Bless others with it. It's not make less money. Do you see? Philippians 2 again. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Are we using whatever we've been given to our own advantage? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We all have this default posture, default height, How beautiful it is to see a grown man on the ground having a tea party. How beautiful to see somebody with a career spending their their vacation or their weekend serving. Revelation 4. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We lay our crowns down. Whatever we have, whatever we've earned, whatever we think that we've achieved, whatever we have inherently, whatever authority we have, we lay our crowns down. That's how we become Christ-like in this. We give him that service. We have a right to do something, but that's not the most important thing in the room. One of those go-to stories I always have is William Penn. He was a man who came from wealth and privilege. He wore a sword to show his rank in society. It wasn't really for dueling, but, you know, in this age, people would wear swords. And he was a Quaker, and he found wearing the sword incompatible with what the Quakers were teaching him. And so he asked George Fox for advice, and the advice was wear it as long as you can. 
Wear it as long as you can. And there's so much to this story that I love. But this idea of realizing I'm going to lay down my privilege, my family name, my prestige, my position in society, I'm going to lay it down for the sake of the gospel. That's the story. That's what we're called to do. What do you have? Who do you have? What, what have you been given that will reveal the glory of God? That's our story. William had the right to wear his sword. <laughs> like, society would not have faulted him. Like, yeah, that's your family. This is, this is where you are in society. You're a gentleman. You, you've got the education. You've got the experience. You know, you, you've done this stuff. The sword's yours to wear, and it's fine to wear it. But he laid it down. He laid it down for a gospel that told him of a better way. And that's salvation. Assuming a humble posture. All the talk that we give about rights is often self-serving. I don't have time for this, so I'm not going to read it to you. But Romans 14, you should read it. If you don't know Romans 14, if you're not at least familiar with it, this is where it talks about those who have lesser faith, but loving your brother instead. If, if they believe that it's wrong to eat meat, don't eat meat. <laughs> if, if, if they celebrate this as a holiday, and, and you know that it's not a holiday or whatever, love them. Bless them. Lay down your rights. Let that gap happen, right? So that we can see love and humility and grace, that you don't have to be the right one in the room. Uh, when I was a soccer coach, there's a lot of things that, that the Lord started saying to me through that, but I'll never forget this one time where there was this dad who was not very good, <laughs> but he was out there with his kids. And I could tell that it was vaguely embarrassing you know what I mean and I saw his kid vaguely embarrassed you know and it was one of those moments like what do we do here and and I I made the choice to really lift up this dad because what I saw was by the dad being glorified by the dad being celebrated the kid looked at his dad with more love there was this picture of, of just like by honoring each other, by seeing the image of Christ in each other, it's a picture of all this coming together. And whenever we serve each other, when we love each other, what, what happens in that space, uh, we, we could tear down each other all we want. We're destroying the glory of God. But by giving this man respect and honor in a small way, <laughs> you know, it just creates this whole idea that we're all going to be a part of something better. It reveals glory. I want us to appreciate the beauty of life. The beauty of community. The beauty of humility. Not to be afraid about it, taking advantage of. To utilize its power and effectiveness. To allow this to settle our soul. We need peace like Brother Lawrence in the beginning. We need peace. No more grind, no more hustle. Sabbath, shalom. I think we've allowed the, the fear to, that being humble is not going to allow you to live the full life. And it's the exact opposite. We're afraid that if we're humble, then we're going to have a lesser life than if I'm so important and I take what's mine. I think that that's the tension that we find. We don't want to trust God's ways we trust my ways. We trust the American dream. 
We trust what I can see in my bank account at the end of the day. I trust what I, I know is, is solid and factual. But this call to follow Christ, the do-nothing farming, maybe he really has our best intentions in mind. Can we actually allow our lives to reveal God's glory rather than my own? Is it going to be about what Josh can do, or is it going to be about what God can do? That's the call to humility. That's the call that we all have. What is your life going to show? How good you are or how good your God is? What it's going to look like is real sacrifice. Seeking the lost and the least. And again, the big idea is that the fruit of a humble life, the work produced by humble hands, reveals God's glory. Ironically, humble prayer leads to larger prayers because we know that it's not our good intentions or our best efforts that will be revealed on the outcome. Do you understand that? This is actually counter to what you probably think. So let me, let me say that again because this is we're going to do ministry here. You should have this in mind. Humble prayer leads to larger prayers because we know that it's not our good intentions or our best efforts that's going to be revealed in the outcomes. We pray small prayers because we think it's about us. <laughs> we pray small prayers because I don't know if God's glory will be revealed or not, and I don't want to look like a fool. If we realize, God, show up, please, then oh my goodness, when he does, and we know it's not about that guy who prayed the most fumbling, bumbling, inarticulate prayer, but wow, God showed up. That's what we're talking about. Humble prayers lead to God being revealed. And it's a much better story than, oh, God, if you would, would you please do something here nice and we'll move on from here. My prayer is not about me, but about revealing to whom I'm praying what he can do. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The glory revealed is that difference in that picture. The glory of God or my own. We're going to go now. You want to come back up, Ethan? Um, I don't know if there's more prophetic word cards, but I, I definitely wanted to read this one before we, we start praying. Because I, I think we've, we've noted before that, that our church has been marked by a lot of different things through our, our seasons and everything. And, and I, this is a... This is a word that I'm, I'm going to lean into a bit. We've seen dark nights of the soul. Uh, we've helped people, I know, through struggles with their faith, with loss, with sorrow, with grief. And uh, this word says, No longer will you call yourselves a church of broken people. Take note of what I've already done in you and be in awe of the new age before you. May we not become so fixated on the brokenness of this world, on the, the, the shortage of our, of our own story. Now, those things matter, and we, we meet them with the fullness of God, right? That, yes, this life is, is, is fraught with troubles and, and sorrows and loss and grief, but those are not the defining parts of our lives. The defining parts of our lives is where God's glory is revealed. So he will give us a new name. He will give us a new people. And I think that, that in this idea of humility, it doesn't lead us to be a, a shell of ourselves. It allows us to be who we were actually called to be from the very beginning, 
who you knew before any sorrow or trouble reached your shores. It allows you to be the fullness and to have the, the full life that Christ promised. That's what I want us to enjoy. If you think that you've been praying smaller prayers, if you think that, that, that you've had the wrong kind of humility, let's do something about it today. Like, let, let's engage with the God who sees you, who knows you, who calls you, not because we have the world's best ministry team, but because we have the one true God as our Lord and Savior.